Ladies and gents, I am very, very excited to be putting out into the world the very first episode of the If Then podcast presented by If Then Ventures. My name is David Ikenna Adams, and I'm here on behalf of If Then's community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, killer operators, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. On this inaugural episode, I am doing what any aspiring podcaster would do, simply asking one of my buddies to join as a guest. Personally, I think Ryan did a great job. Today's guest, Ryan Taggett, is a technology attorney in disguise, and that he works at a big four accounting firm, PwC. In this episode, we learn about how he went from big law to big four, how that move significantly broadened his future career prospects, and I learn what the hell a printer that corporate associates are always talking about is. If you have some thoughts or ideas for future episodes, or you're interested in being on the show, feel free to reach out to me, David, at ifthen.vc. But in any case, make sure you literally stop what you're doing, like literally stop right now, and rate this podcast five stars in the podcasting app of your choice. Seriously, I'll wait. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Let's get to it. Yes, we are activated. Welcome to the If Then Podcast, presented by If Then Ventures. I am your host, David Ikenna Adams, representing If Then, a community of legal wayfinders, attorneys, operators, all around badasses that help founders and builders make legal strategy their competitive advantage. I am very pleased to have as my first guest, Ryan Delano Taggett. Uh, Delano is just a guess as to his middle name, but let's see if we can make it stick. Ryan has had a career that is in part focused on transactions uh, in the life sciences and technology space, um, including biopharmaceuticals, medical devices, and other agreements and issues that arise in the cycle of a product. But let's let Ryan tell you more about what he does and how he adds to the growth and strategy of a product, of a company, of a business. Ryan, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm very glad to be here. Honored to be uh, one of your earliest guests. Yeah. And, you know, if this goes well enough, we might actually post it. So let's see how it goes. A disclaimer, Ryan and I have known each other for the better part of 10 years uh, since law school. And in a different world, this podcast would be entirely about softball. But uh, we'll see. we'll see if we can spend some time doing something we almost never do, which is talk about the law and legal careers. Um, And maybe we'll both learn. What do you think? I think that's great. Although most of my anecdotes about my my career involve softball metaphors, so I think that's okay. (laughs) Okay, good. You know, we have to find a a way to relate to the things that we do um, anyway. So um, I think think we'll be good. A lot of talking about projects that end with, that was a real home run. Very, very, very basic, very basic, um, but it gets, it gets, it gets, it gets the, the point across. Um, Ryan, can you give us like a summary of your career so far that led to you ending up at least right now at uh, PwC? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, you and I went to law school together and graduated in 2012. And I, I started working and worked for about, gosh, I guess five years 
at Hogan Lovells in Washington, D.C., doing general corporate work. And, it, you know, that I, I kind of fell into that because that's what they needed at the time. And I know I didn't want to do litigation. So I just fell into corporate work doing um, some M&A, a lot of capital markets, reviewing 10Ks and Qs and that sort of thing. Not the most fascinating work in my no? opinion, but no, um, you know, probably pretty typical junior associate corporate work. Um, do, do, you th- uh, do you think that was a function of what, of Hogan specifically or that Hogan office, you know, falling? It, it's always interesting hearing people fall into corporate work um, because like law school focuses so much on like the kind of ideas and concepts around litigation, which is, I, I kind of had inertia just going into litigation, but you seem to at least know you didn't want to do litigation. So like, how, how does, how does Hogan like steer you into corporate work? So I personally hated my legal research and writing course. So <laughs> I knew, I knew I didn't want to do litigation because I, I envisioned that as, as being sort of the same on Westlaw researching things and, and uh, writing all day. And litigation and corporate are the two big groups at Hogan. There, there are also a number of regulatory practices. So when you start there, at least back in 2012, you fill out some forms that indicate your preferences. And I ranked all, sort of, um, all sorts of obscure small regulatory practices with like three people, you know, environmental law and things like that that were pretty small, but seemed interesting to me at the time. But I, I think you know, corporate and litigation just generate by far the, the lion's share of the work. And so they suck up most people. And being that I didn't rank litigation at all, I ended up in corporate. Um, Got it. And so you're, sh- you're shout right. out to your LRW uh, professor for so thoroughly affecting your career. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the same Absolutely. one. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no disrespect to Sarah Stewart. I think it just wasn't for me. But you're right, you, you kind of go into that practice, or at least I did, with very little background knowledge. You know, I think you and I actually took corporations together, and I took a couple of corporate classes in law school. But other than those, a few basic concepts, I really didn't have a lot of background. And so you start off, you know, this is, a, in my opinion, I, I think this is a criticism of how it was done at Hogan and how I've heard it's done at a lot of firms. I think there would be a big benefit from some sort of training but it's more of a just throw you in and you'll learn as you go. Um, so that was me for, for several years. Yeah, and one, one thing you mentioned that I think is like pretty key is a lot of times, you know, where you go out of law school, where that firm makes its money is really kind of a key, a key driver of determining, you know, what you do. And that can certainly have an impact on the line you go on down the line you were talking about like environmental practices and regulatory practices that had like a small number of people at the firm doing it. And, you know, if you are super focused on doing those things, you know, you can work with those people. And uh, at least in my experience on some level in big firms, you can have some kind of way to drive your career, but ultimately like where the work is, is where you want to be. That's where the firm is making its money. That's the best thing for your career, at least at that place. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, I was getting plenty of work in the corporate field. I was you know, making my bonuses because I was hitting my hours. And so that was enough to continue driving me for a few years until I made a pivot. And this 
by the way, Kenna, until I made a pivot into my next firm, uh, Covington, Covington and Burling in DC as well. And, and there I didn't do general corporate. I did um, life sciences, tech transactions kind of work. All right. So I got a couple of questions. Um, sure. Uh, what are life sciences? And did you need to know anything about life sciences to start doing life sciences work as what I guess is a, a mid-ish to senior level associate? No, I once again chose to throw all my prior knowledge out the window and, and start from scratch in a practice area where I knew little to nothing. <laughs> you know, other than just sort of generally having reviewed contracts, all sorts of contracts for due diligence in my Hogan years. I really didn't have a lot of background going into Covington. Um, that job was more in the pharmaceutical and medical device fields. Our clients were most of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the United States and globally, um, like AstraZeneca and other big names you would have heard of. And I've only you know, heard of AstraZeneca because of a debilitating pandemic over the last two years, but um, I guess, you know, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's the last couple of years have been a pretty busy time at in my old practice group at Covington, from what I've heard, speaking to former colleagues. Um, that's one area that never really slowed down with the pandemic. Do I personally claim credit for saving billions of lives with vaccines? You know, I'll leave that to the listeners to decide. <laughs> the, the, the world, the world, the world will tell that story. However, it uh, however it needs to be told. But, uh, exactly. No, no conclusions will be reached on this podcast in in either direction. <laughs> But, you know, I, I made the switch for a couple of reasons. One, like I said, I did find it a little boring. I think it was a little bit rote, the work at Hogan. In retrospect, if I'd stuck around, I would have started getting more mid-level and senior associate work, which probably would have been more interesting. But I just didn't see myself doing that long term. I know I'm jumping back again, but as between the capital markets and corporate governance M&A, the M&A stuff was kind of interesting. It was more unique and custom on each deal. But that was one of the things that appealed to me at um, switching to Covington was that each transaction was very, very different from others, very little ability to rely on precedence. And uh, definitely I'm glad I made that switch. Why, why are the transactions in like the life sciences space, or at least the ones that you were doing more unique than standard, you know, corporate work or M&A transactions that you might have been working on earlier? So my experience in capital markets in particular, which is pro probably was 75% of my work at Hogan, was you know some issuer, a public company issuer, and we might represent the issuer or the underwriter in a, um, an equity offering or a debt offering. But usually an issuer was going to issue a new series of um, some sort of equity instrument or debt instrument. And it was just going to be another $100 million of the same series E shares as before. So you would start with the precedent documents and sort of dupe them out with the financial information updated, which sort of involved all the, all the stress of a normal transaction, but very little of the interest or creativity for me. You know, signature pages, this, that phrase still um, <laughs> sends shivers up my spine. Just so I, I, well, I have the, a question yeah. that, that you spark for me. Um, yeah, sure. When I was at, at Latham as a young litigation associate and 
we had very little corporate work in our office that was in the um, Silicon Valley office largely, but the corporate associates would talk about the printer. And I never really knew <laughs> what that was or what that meant, but they would be like, oh, I was all night at the printer. And I'm like, are they talking about a literal printer? Are they talking about like a Kinko's? Like, what are they actually talking about? And I always felt too dumb to ever like ask what the hell is the printer. Someone told me, in fact, uh, someone told me that they met their wife at the printer, like a corporate uh, attorney. She she worked at the printer. So like, it. Do you are you using the printer in these types of things? Like, what is that? Yeah, there's a small company called Pop Copy, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, good. I was, that's I was a Chappelle show. Thing. That's a Chappelle show reference. Uh, uh, <laughs> look, look it up. It's a 20 year old Chappelle show reference, but yeah, uh, look it up. The, super relevant. Um, <laughs> no, so, so there are actual printers. Um, R. Donnelly is one that we used a lot. There are these other companies. And I never got the pleasure of doing this. I heard stories from people older than me about actually physically going to the printer. By the time I started, um, everything was done remotely. But part of the process of um, the capital markets offering is generating all these documents, like a prospectus and things like that, that are required by SEC regulations. And before they're, so eventually they're all mailed out to all the shareholders. They're also a digital copy is uploaded to the SEC website. And it's this big, long document with all kinds of information and required disclosures to shareholders. And they would get actually physically printed. And so in the old days, you would go to the printer and sort of negotiate between the issuer and the underwriter over changes to this document. And the printer would incorporate it all, print it out, and you would sit there with an actual physical, I know your younger listeners are completely lost right now, <laughs> but um, the, you'd actually sit there paging through a physical document and review it and make hand markup changes, hand it to the a guy who worked for the printer and they would go and revise it. This was all digital by the time that I was doing these kind of deals. And so I would mark up, I would print out what the printer sent me, mark it up with a pencil, scan it to them, and it would all be done remotely. But the cool thing about the stories of the printer was like, oh, man, we would order all kinds of great food. It's just mm -hmm. like the yeah. land of milk and honey. There's you yeah. know, sometimes there's alcohol there or whatever. I mean, that's probably shouldn't say that. But <laughs> keep, um, keep that on the down low for the Hogan, <laughs> uh, your Hogan NDA or whatever. Yeah, um, I heard funny. that. It's, it's that I heard how... that from other firms. <laughs> <laughs> that was strictly a um, uh, Davis Polk thing. I don't, I don't know exactly. if you're like, oh, Strictly a Davis Polk thing. Um, yeah. It's funny how uh, like food and things like that can be drivers of a young, uh, uh, potentially brainwashed populace of overworked attorneys. It's like, well, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get to order seamless. So, you know, be happy about the printer. Um, and, anyway. and frankly, <laughs> and frankly, they nickel and dime you on that too, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Like, if I stay and work an extra thirty minutes because I'm getting a free meal. That yep. pays for like a hundred meals yeah. at the rate, at the rate that I'm billing. And yet if I went over by a dollar, they would reimburse me and then charge me $1. It's insane. Really? Wow. That's like, yeah, some, there was uh, no flexibility. Who knew you worked for the, uh, the Oakland A's of, uh, big law law firms. That, that was uh, a, uh, uh, there's another reference, but, uh, 20 year old reference, but the, like, it was a kind of a passage in, in, the book and movie Moneyball that like the ace players had to pay for their own sodas. Uh, unconfirmed if that was ever actually true, but that was an example of how poor 
the A's franchise was. So once again, shout out to Hogan Lovells on this podcast. We'll be sure to send this around to the uh, yeah the, the equity partners there. Um, okay, well, I was uh, I no, I just to close out that point. Yeah, I, I I was always considered sort of the Jeremy Giambi of my group <laughs> at. That's roided, roided up and yeah. uh, 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 not very fast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get those changes in from the printer in time. You didn't uh, slide uh, into the uh, printer tray. I don't know. I went for actually, something. actually, let me, let me tell one really <laughs> quick anecdote. So I, I was working on an offering documents and uh, for a client and the client wanted to revamp their style. And so they had me they're like, look at some of the cover pages from our competitors in this industry. And so I did, and I copied out and copied out one of their competitors cover pages to a prospectus and, you know, stripped out their logo and information and added in my client's information. What I didn't realize is that none of the hyperlinks were stripped. And so this was actually published to the SEC website. And when you clicked on <laughs> my client's thing, it took you straight to their competitor's prospectus. Um, <laughs> So that was without a doubt the biggest screw up I ever did. Yeah, that's I, I should have a whole episode of lawyer screw ups. Uh, I definitely had a few uh, in my day that were not too disastrous. But I will uh, like one of my <clears throat> proudest moments was when I worked at Ease and I had written our terms of service and we had a competitor that was essentially an Ease copycat. Um, and Ease, Ease is a cannabis delivery company in uh, California, kind of the uh, like a DoorDash for cannabis. Our competitor had a terms of service that was very clearly like largely copied from ours, from the one that I wrote. And of course, the one I wrote was Frankenstein from other like uh, various sure. companies' uh, terms of services. Um, but this was like a blatant uh, pace job. And similarly, they did not change hyperlinks. And so some of their hyperlinks oh. linked back to our website. And it was like that for like nine months. I would check um, periodically, uh, you know, amused. Little did I know that no one reads the terms of service, so it doesn't matter. But, um, you know, uh, it was a nice feather in my cap. Um, Okay, let's, let's, let's fast forward from your illustrious corporate lawyer life into how you came to work at PwC, because I really want to dig into uh, it's, you know, uh, I have a clear understanding of what it's like to be a big law lawyer in some respects. I really don't have any understanding of what it's like to work at like a big four auditing firm, which like for accountants is like, that's like their version of big law. So can, can you like talk about how you transitioned into that role, why you did, and uh, maybe just like what you actually do there? Um, so I saw you transition into the marijuana industry and I thought, what is the second sexiest industry I could choose? And so white shoe accounting is what came to mind. Yes, Um, no. So, I mean, my my transition was, uh, for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, the typical big law burnout. I definitely suffered from that. And so I had an interest in general, of uh, going in house somewhere, but I was open to different possibilities. I was applying to obviously jobs in the pharma life sciences spaces, mostly with companies in New York because I was in New York at that time. And, you know, some technology positions as well because I thought my my uh, life sciences experience would translate pretty well to that. And, and that's the kind of role I ended up in at PwC. So PwC obviously is one of the big four um, accounting firms, rest in peace, Arthur Anderson. And, 
you know, the traditional model for delivering services to our clients is the same as the other big four, which is a bunch of uh, people in suits and white shirts performing services, doing tax returns and auditing and that kind of stuff. But as technology and financial services technology has developed, I think due to competitive pressures, all of the big four have started to rely more on technology. And so what that means for PwC is that where previously we may have used a team of 20 accountants to perform a certain task, now we can license you a piece of software for some fraction of the cost. It's infinitely scalable. It's more profitable for us. And it's also saves a lot of money for our clients who are most of the Fortune 500 kind of companies. And so what that means is we're investing a lot of money into developing technology products. And so we need technology lawyers. So I saw this opportunity as a way to get into a broader field than just life sciences, to get into tech in general. And so that's what I've done. And my role is as a, a product attorney. Well, I think you read my uh, my official little bio was at the beginning, but I, I helped to review from, from inception all the way up to building out the final license terms, um, the full life cycle of a technology product. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's super interesting because it you really are pretty clearly describing a something that I think is fairly new on the scene, which is like the role of product counsel, um, yeah. uh, which in my mind is something of like, you're, you're, you're almost like a unit general counsel for like a thing, a piece of software. Um, and you take care of things like marketing contracts and terms of service and how the development, like any, any regulatory aspects of the development in, in addition to just kind of like pumping out a form of documents or contracts or reviewing an agreement or something along those lines. You know, like when I was as, a, as a, an attorney coming from litigation who wanted to get into tech, in at least on the West Coast in California, it's significantly harder to, or at least it was circa, you know, 2017, to just like fall into a job at a tech company if you're not a corporate or a transactional lawyer. Like mm-hmm. tech companies tend to want commercial counsel. They want you to be doing agreements. If you're a SaaS company, you want someone pumping out agreements and you don't want to pay, you know, the Hogan Lovell's version of Ryan Taggett X amount of money to be pumping out agreements when you can hire someone in-house. Like the current right. version of Ryan Taggett, much <laughs> or, cheaper. Or the, or the current version of Ryan Taggett. But the opportunity, the product council role, and especially its rise to prominence in recent years affords folks focused on litigation or other aspects that aren't purely transactional is something that's hugely beneficial to folks trying to get into tech. I think in general, it's clear tech companies are hiring lawyers earlier, um, whether they're regulatory, litigation, commercial, corporate, etc. And I think you've tapped into this in a different way, but I think it still kind of speaks to the similar trend that's certainly beneficial to young attorneys looking to escape big law, um, but also very beneficial to companies themselves thinking about legal aspects much sooner than they otherwise might have. So you being, and let's say in the version of the world before remote was much more popular, coming from New York and getting into tech is, it just, it feels and seems like a different path. And, and you were in this like life sciences role um, and 
you've been able to broaden that by going in-house, even if it's not directly to a tech company? Like, did you, what, I mean, when you were looking, I guess, first off, were you specifically looking for a job? It sounds like you were. And what was like the type of options that at least you saw, or at least you thought you were well fit into as a life sciences transactional attorney looking to get into tech? So as, as I was job searching, which probably lasts about a year and a half, and you know, part of that is just because you're so freaking busy and big while you don't have time to devote a lot of time to searching for a job. But as I did that over a year and a half, I, I would say my, sh- my overall focus shifted from life sciences to tech positions because I saw so many different tech positions and the descriptions of the roles had a much greater variety. As I was looking at the life sciences positions, I saw myself getting further and further pigeonholed into becoming a regulatory expert about FDA regulations and things like that. Whereas I thought this, this world of tech is so broad. It's not as limited to, I mean, of course there are centers um, in geographic centers where these jobs tend to be located, but it felt less limited by geography than life sciences. Um, I don't know if that's true. I just feel like I saw interesting positions in more places. Um, And I thought, well, heck, if I don't like PwC, I can at least market. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in a stronger career position to market myself as a product counsel slash tech attorney than I would be to just further narrow myself as an FDA lawyer. Yeah, like FDA, like you think about uh, these, and you were in DC before, but you can think about like, there's, there's a version of the world where you would come out of big law and you'd say kind of like, what, what can I do? And it depends on, and there's, there's just these paths and big law is really good about laying out paths and then people kind of, and I don't want to say mindlessly following them, but like following them because that's the, the, a very achievable thing in front of them. Like I was in the white collar group for a while at Latham and like a ton of the people, they go to work at the DOJ. It's a very, there's a very like clear and easy, like story for you to tell for that to be your next job. But what if you don't want to work at the DOJ? Do you, are you officially a white collar lawyer? Because that's what uh, you were doing. Are you officially an investigations lawyer? You know, I, I don't think you have to be. And I could definitely see a version of Ryan that was just like, well, like you just mentioned, I, I came from a DC firm. Covington is definitely like well represented in the world of regulatory uh, mm-hmm. law. I can go be an FDA regulatory lawyer because that's where my skills are. I, the, the, I, I find the intentionality of pivoting into technology, even through what I would say is somewhat of a non-traditional way of going into an accounting firm um, as a technology product counsel um, is super interesting because, you know, let's say, let's say you're not going to be at PwC for the rest of your life. I'm willing to take a gamble on that. Um, like you do have the like ability to expand into being a, a more just like a, a technology attorney, a guy who works at a tech company. And that is so broad and there's so many different things that you can do and different skills you can acquire. Um, so, I mean, I really like that. Um, and so like, how have you found, has that role developed in that way that you expected when you got and took the gig? Yeah, it really has. Um, it, and the role has, as 
PwC continues to devote more and more resources and hire more people. And our, my little group has grown into a medium-sized group. Um, my role has become broader as well. Like when I first started, I was doing a whole lot of intellectual property kind of work um, in just a little bit in the product space as I was getting integrated into that. And now um, most of what I do is product counseling kind of work. It really, knowing anything about accounting is not necessary for my job at all. You could plug me into a totally different company with software products. I mean, I know a little bit about accounting just through osmosis. <laughs> Despite my best efforts, I've picked up a few things. But you, you really could plug me in and plug my role into, I would imagine, almost any software company. Um, and I would, I would do essentially, you know, play essentially the same role. Because those needs exist at any, at any company that's developing software products has to worry about licensing and intellectual property and open source and all these kinds of issues. So can we talk about what kind of products that PwC or any kind of accounting firm is putting out? They're not going to be, it doesn't seem to me, like I'm not seeing news releases on blank product from PwC. So how what, what type of products is a company developing? How are they being used? And how are you helping those things kind of come to fruition? Yeah, so we have things internally, we divide things into a few different buckets. Some are standalone products where a client can just take a license, just like you and I um, can go out and get a license to you know Microsoft Office or whatever. And a lot of things, even more things are we call accelerators, which is something that we make available to the client in connection with providing services. So we might be able to, if a client hires us to, because um, we have a big consulting arm as well, not just not just audit and tax and that sort of work. So We're a client might- auditing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so if a client hires us to perform consulting work, we might be able to do it with a much smaller team because our work is you know, very, very much tech enabled. And so, I'm trying to think of a good example that's not just like boring as dirt, but um. <laughs> you heard it here first. Ryan is uh, re replacing humans with software uh, as as a service. Oh boy! Um, different sorts of programs where it empowers the client to. Um, we we don't have to send a team in to the client headquarters to review all sorts of documents and upload it and do calculations. We'll provide the software, train the client on the software, and they can input a lot of their own financial information. Um, we might plug that into some models that are industry specific for that client that will show them where they're performing um, well, where where they need to improve, or where they're off market. Things like that. So, yeah, just sophisticated. You know, a lot. We like every company. We love to talk about how our tools are AI, uh, are based on artificial intelligence and machine learning and things like that. But um, <laughs> from what I can tell, it's true. And yeah, it's it's a different way of doing things. Okay, so if I could kind of summarize here, you know, PwC. Uh, they do accounting, they do auditing, they do consulting, all these types of things you might use a large firm like this for, and different use cases might have different types of deployments in order to serve the client. And what you are doing is 
helping you have internal teams. And I assume those teams have engineers and product managers and development life cycles. And you are helping them bring products forth that help PwC, that either one help PwC uh, make its operations more efficient to help its clients, or that PwC can package as an offering and send to the clients um, at, uh, as a means of the clients improving or making their operations more efficient for kind of a given uh, task. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we have products and services that really aren't even related to accounting. Like we have a big initiative um, called ESG for environmental, social, and governments standards where we incorporate all these sorts of different best practices that are published in, in standards and analyses that are published by different global nonprofit groups. And we help to, we, we help uh, our clients to understand how are they performing in terms of what's the environmental and social impact of their business and how does it, how does it compare to peers? Where can they improve it? Things like that. So it, it definitely goes beyond, increasingly goes beyond traditional finance and accounting um, areas as well. So let me ask you, you know, one thing that I really like to focus on for if then is attorneys having a growth mindset, a mindset that helps push the business forward. And for internal counsels, that might mean a mindset enabling a product to come to market um, faster, better, more efficiently, and not simply kind of managing risk or answering risk-based questions that someone brings to you. So what I would ask to you is, uh, if there is an aspect or way that you have felt that like you were best able to help a product succeed, is it, is it from that risk standpoint? Is it from some other standpoint? Like what's unique about the business or about the products or about the way that you think about them that can help these products actually succeed and bring value to PwC and PwC's clients? So I always try to think, this may be um, counterproductive for my own job security, but I always try to advise teams, you know, how can we draft terms and licenses and things like that, that we're not going to go have to go back and reinvent the wheel every time the developers and engineers make updates and changes to the tool because, you know, one of the frustrations sometimes in my job is we'll get, we'll get done building out the license um, for a product. And then the, the developers come and say, Hey, we have a brand new idea. And that triggers a re-review of the whole thing in our, our processes. And so trying to build things out in terms of legal documentation, which is my area in a way that is flexible trying to have conversations with the development team, which they're not, you know, they're not always used to talking to lawyers, but me trying to wrap my simple lawyer brain around these concepts of where they want to take the product over the next six months, couple years, and anticipate those things, and then build out the legal documentation in a way that um, can accommodate the future changes. So that's one. I mean, and when I say job security, maybe it would be better for me to make things inefficient to create, make more work for myself. But you're if not I in can big get... law, I, I assume you're not billing anymore, so you don't have <laughs> no. to. You don't have to worry about that. No, thank goodness, I'm not. Um, so things like that, you're trying to have conversations at a level. <laughs> oftentimes, 
having to humble myself and say, okay, explain this to me like someone who really does not have any backgrounds in, in computer science, which is true. Why don't I you don't explain have... <laughs> it to me like I'm four? Yes, exactly. And then sometimes I say, okay, um, now take that and explain it like I'm two because yeah. the, four, <laughs> the four-year-old explanation was too complex. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, it's, you know, the old saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think taking the time to have those conversations up front as opposed to just straightforward executing on what's asked now. Um, let's take a few extra minutes and think about not just what's needed now, but what's going to be needed down the road. So I, I try and have that future-oriented mindset as much as I can. Yes, a future-oriented mindset I think is very important when you're talking about products um, and processes, um, uh, whether that's in agreements or regulatory stances, um, uh, really anything. Um, all right, so the last thing I guess like I have on PwC is what is the best PwC product, um, the most used, the best seller, or your favorite? So we developed a custom app that just sits on the phone of that one PwC partner who screwed up the Oscars, and it just vets <laughs> everything he does. Um, <laughs> um, shout, out to, shout out to Moonlight. Uh, still, yeah. still like my favorite Oscars moment. I think my, my wife was asleep, and I was like shouting... Uh, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an Oscars guy, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Is, is that an actual like guy that, you know, that you are aware of? It's no one that I've ever met. He, he is still a partner at PwC. And one of the funny things after the Oscars last year, um, several, I had a meeting the next day on the following Monday and a bunch of us were like, did anyone, anyone in your life text you about, you know, every time there's an Oscars, do people tease you about it? And everyone of my colleagues was like, yeah, ever since that, every single Oscars, my friends will text me and be like, oh, don't screw this up. So yeah. even the innocent lawyers like me are still living it down. I feel like that's overall good branding for PwC. Um, the, and the I've notoriety had people ask me, stupid thing. <laughs> it definitely increases brand awareness. Uh, you know, if they say, uh, no, whatever, uh, all publicity is good publicity, I guess, uh, good for us. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know, in, I want to say it was like the 2017 Oscars, um, the film uh, La La Land, which had won lots of awards and I believe was the favorite for the best picture Oscar. What's the guy's name? Old actor. War, um, Warren Beatty and yes, uh, Warren, Annette Benning. Warren, Warren Beatty. No, it wasn't. Uh, Annette Benning. isn't Annette Benning his wife? I don't think she was the one. Oh, I thought there. they were. Pre- well, it was definitely Warren Beatty. I thought it was them together, yes. but anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, he read the that the winner was, well, he actually didn't read it. He had a card and the woman read it uh, as La La Land, um, but it was Moonlight that won. It was very strange, um, best picture, um, but very, very notable. Uh, I'm sure you know about this, so I don't know why I'm explaining, but if you don't. Yeah, go look it up on YouTube <laughs> if you've never seen it. It's a pretty, it's, if you just love awkward cringe kind of moments it's a great one yes oh and i didn't even talk about why pwc is involved in this at all it's because oh, i was hoping P- we could get by without uh, <laughs> shaming my P- company P- pwc the screw up was because pwc famously has the oscar results in like some like vault suit uh, suitcase or something that only pwc people do they count the votes 
and they project this image of like the PwC partner with like the suitcase like handcuffed to um handcuffed to him like it's some like secret the nuclear codes. football yeah. yeah exactly and uh but it was the person who like just screwed up on handing the cards they had handed the wrong card to Warren Beatty um it was actually the best actress card that said Emma Stone La La Land on it and he was very confused um uh and he did not get that the actual card Moonlight is who won best picture um chaotic chaotic scene hilarious both great movies by the way completely agree okay. my wife my wife hates la la land um <laughs> and we we frequently argue about this i like la la land um damien chazelle's previous movie whiplash i think is a significantly better movie and uh, a movie that i love but i like i like la la land a lot um uh, nothing like Miles Teller getting shouted at by J.K. Simmons for two hours to bring me joy. Um, yeah, and that, and that was what Big Law was like. If you want a two-hour artistic <laughs> encapsulation of my career in Big Law for eight years. <laughs> no, not really. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, the Terrence Fletcher of Big Law. Um, uh, wonderful. All right, I have one more question for you, Ryan. Sure. It is, you are, I'm going to be trying this one out as kind of my, like, closing question to all learning attorneys and we'll see if this sticks you are a legal consultant for a film or a movie or a uh, or a, a television show you're the best person for the job like what's the plot of the show well damn i feel like i stepped on my answer with that whiplash joke a little bit but <laughs> so the plot is uh uh i guess i would have to base it just because i'm totally uncreative i would make it similar to my favorite semi big law movie the firm starring tom cruise and i would probably uh cast myself obviously and then get into some sort of intrigue with you know let's go ahead and make it uh you know related to organized crime similar to the firm yeah Mm -hmm. um and then I'm just such a, but we, you got to end it in a better way. I didn't like the way they ended. I think mail fraud is how they got those bad guys. <laughs> you got to make it something more interesting than that. So the I don't firm know. Pick ends a, with them like uh, they noticed they were like overbilling or something like that. There's definitely yeah, a lawyer exactly. with, it, with, his, <laughs> with his hands yeah, they were, in the plot of that. <laughs> I think they were overbilling the mafia for their time and they had <laughs> records of it and they got them on mail fraud because they mailed the bills. I'm, I'm pretty sure right. it was that yes. lame. So I would say my movie would be the first 90% of the firm with, uh, you know, maybe more of a shoot them up, guns blazing kind of ending. <laughs> you, ta- you take out the mob. Because if I recall correctly, Tom, yeah. <laughs> Cruise, Tom Cruise gets the mob to stop chasing him because he like turns in his overbilling law firm. And then uh, the mob guy was like, eh, okay. like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They, so my, my film would just be an improvement on the firm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we could do a The Firm <laughs> remake. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We haven't seen, I, we haven't seen a good John Grisham, uh, you know, 90s had a great John Grisham uh, run. We haven't really gotten that. Um, Who's the current so. version of that? David Baldacci? You've lost me with that reference. Uh, I think he's a UVA, I think he's a UVA grad who writes uh, legal thrillers, but I could be wrong. That's amazing. Also because John Grisham yeah. famously lives in Charlottesville. Um, yeah. Yeah hilarious well ryan this was uh an illuminating look into the world of 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 corporate law printers 
um, life sciences, and of course, internal product development at uh, PwC, as well as touching on the Oscars. Um, so thank you so much for joining uh, the inaugural episode of the If Then podcast. You know, whenever you decide to, uh, whenever you guys come up with that, a great, a great new product, or you have some more movie plots to pitch us, come back on the pod. Yeah, I think that's a good idea for a spinoff pod. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank every one of you for listening to the If Then podcast. If you're interested in joining the If Then community, where you can jam with some lawyers, touch on some legal concepts, maybe get in touch with uh, founders and startups, let me know. Reach out at david at ifthen.vc. Otherwise, tune in next time. See you then.